This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hello, hello, hello. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. My name is Nat Turney. Why did I enunciate <laughs> it like that? Why did I go like full uh, Nat I have to get really close. My name is Nat Turney. And I am here, as always, joined uh, with my fellow partner in crime, sometimes partner in grime. Is that a thing? Yeah. Can you be a partner in grime? I'm sure you um, can, yes. yes. Just a couple yeah. of dirty old men. That came yeah, out wrong. Yeah, that came out wrong. Yeah. yeah. My brother John is here. Say hi, John. Hi, John. I know. It's, I to- I'm distracted. I was As I was saying that, I'm looking over at my cat who's about to destroy something. <laughs> I don't even know why I have cats anymore. This, this is this, this one is the most destructive, senseless cat in existence. He just breaks things. I will trade you your cat for my 150 pound dog, who is systematically destroying my deck board by board. No, you can you can keep that. Can you imagine <laughs> that. Have you, have you ever seen the RV I live in? Could you imagine a 150 pound dog in a, in a <laughs> camper? That would be holy shit. That'd be bad. But anyway, <laughs> as we as we do so very very often, we digress. So. This is the podcast, everybody. Uh, this is what you tuned in for, right? This is what you signed up for. This is why you pay us the big bucks. Um, so wait, we can, wait, hold on. We get money? Shit, I let that slip. <laughs> this is why you pay me the big bucks, and then I tell John oh. no money no money came oh, in. Um, I, I, yeah, okay. That makes way so, more sense. <laughs> <it does. laughs> Did I ever tell you once I got accused of being a cult leader? At my little, at the little church I used to run of like twenty five people, I'm like, if I'm a cult leader, I suck at this. <laughs> like, <laughs> like nobody's coming and nobody's giving me money. I'm the worst cult leader in history. Come on, man. I've gotten so sidetracked. I haven't even said the name of the podcast. Which I, I said, I assume if you click the the podcast, like you've gone to the trouble of looking at it and clicking on it, that you know what you're listening to. Uh, and yet here we are. This is not church, by the way, because if it was church, you would have left by now, and John and I would be right behind you as you go. So. Um, we're glad that you're here. We have another awesome guest with us. Let me, let me read you a little something about him and then we will jump headfirst into wherever the conversation takes us. So here we go. Michael Camp is a former evangelical missionary, aid worker, and church leader who lived in Africa for seven years, including assignments in Somalia, Kenya, and Malawi. He has worked for Food for the Hungry, World Concern, and World Vision. Uh, Camp studied missions at William Carey International University and Fuller Seminary and earned a master's degree from Eastern University. Michael and his wife, Lori, reside in Polesbo, Washington. Did I say Polesbo right? You did say it right. Yes. What? All right. I have a master of pronunciation. Um, Polesbo. Where's, where the heck is Polesbo? It's, it's just west of Seattle, across the Puget Sound, if you're familiar with the city. So you're in God's country. Yeah, well, it's the, it's the uh, best of both worlds. So, so suburbs and the rural area combined. Yeah, my my wife uh, my wife is from Port Angeles. Yeah, so. yeah, it's not that's on the other side. Yeah, that's close to us. Not too far. Yeah, matter of mm-hmm. fact, she'll be heading she'll be heading up your way um, in a couple of weeks. She's going she's going to hit Port Angeles, Seattle. I, I unfortunately do not get to go with her to my favorite my my most favorite big city in all of the United States, Seattle. I love that I love that city. 
but uh, I don't get to it's, go this time. It's a great city. Yeah. Just don't tell too many people about it. Yeah, yeah really. Still trying <laughs> to keep it a secret, right? Trying to keep it a secret. But yeah. we've blown our cover right now. So <laughs> I've only been to Seattle once and I loved it. It's amazing. It's an amazing city, but it was right after, eh, after not really, but towards the tail end of the COVID um, lockdown stuff. And what was that name of that group that was occupying a part of Seattle for a while? Oh, right. The occupying block there in downtown. I forgot the name of it. Yeah. And, yeah. and so we were, we were, you know, how, you know, we're telling friends, Hey, we're going on. It's like, it's like when I went to tell friends we were taking to Chicago and they're like, Oh man, be careful. That's a dangerous city. Chicago's an amazing city. We talked about it. Um, they're like, Oh man, Seattle's a mess right now, man. It's totally crazy. And we're like, okay, whatever. And it was fantastic. I mean, yeah, there was, we, we actually, we actually went to a, to a brewery that we wanted to go visit called Elysium, which is was turned out to be like right across the street from yeah, where I this mean, whole I area there, was. I there a lot. I actually was there last week. An amazing brewery. One of my favorites. Like Space right. Dust is like, oh, but anyway. But we actually walked it. We're walking. We parked our car. We're walking up toward the brewery and we actually walked headlong into a protest. And oh, it was, wow. yeah, you know, yeah, right. just an army of people walking down the middle of the street, very peacefully chanting, um, actually yelling at us to put our phones away and Join them in the street. I see. <laughs> and we were, they were like, and we were like, man, I, I, I would, but there's deer over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think food. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I sympathize and I'm on board, but I got to go over here and drink. So anyway, not sure why I told you that story other, other than, you know, just for, just for giggles, but let's, let's get started, man. Let's, let's talk about this. I, you and I actually got to meet, although we didn't get to spend nearly enough time together at Awake in Nashville uh, yes. uh, just mm-hmm. earlier this month. And it's always the case when you go to an event like that and there's 10 or 12 people you're like, man, I want to talk to all these people. Um, right. You don't get to really talk as much as you'd like to. But we did get a chance to, to chit-chat a little bit. And it was a really, really good event. Had a, had a lot of fun. Bunch of awesome, like-minded people. If you wouldn't mind, I know we touched briefly on your, on your background a little bit. Just kind of give us a, you know, a little bit of your, of your religious or your faith journey, whatever, however you feel comfortable expressing it. Like kind of what got you to where you are these days. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I, I spent about 25 years in the evangelical movement uh, in various capacities, kind of starting with kind of in my teenage years, you know, I went to my first Jesus festival where, you know, I, I saw Jesus rock bands and Billy Graham and, you know, all these things and, you know, was introduced to the rapture and this book called The Late Great Planet Earth <laughs> by Paul Lindsay. <laughs> and I remember then, it well. Yeah, and then the, and then my mom, you know, started going to this born again Baptist uh, church down the street, and she was all excited. So she got me in the youth group, and and uh, I slowly kind of got indoctrinated into evangelicalism. And you know, I saw some good things in it, but I, you know, but but you know, in your formative years when I was kind of mixed up in a lot of ways, I was trying to find some answers, and they said, "Well, we have all the answers." And, you know, I met some people that I like, so you get involved. And later on, I got officially saved in college and got involved with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And then eventually got, became a missionary. I went down to the, the deep end of the evangelical swimming pool, chose the highest diving board and dove in. I <laughs> uh, went to Africa, you know, to, to reach the unreached Muslims. Long story short, a lot of red flags, uh, you know, started questioning doctrines like the doctrine of hell, for example, all, all kinds of things, sexuality, the way we looked at that, uh, the infallibility of the Bible, etc. And eventually uh, deconstructed and finally got out of it uh, over 
a, a long period of time, but it's probably been, I don't know, 20, 18 years now since that, that's happened. So since then, I've written a couple of books and I, I got a new book coming out called Breaking Bad Faith. I want to talk about later, but um, it's, uh, it's really, it's my most exciting. I'm excited about this book more than the others. Um, I had another, I had a book called Confessions of a Bible Thumper, which was kind of my deconstruction. And then I had a book called Craft Brew Jesus, which was kind of my reconstruction. So if you, if, uh, if you saw the cover of the first book, you'd know there's always, there's a beer theme in the both, both of those books. And the first book is, I, I, um, I'm proud that it's the only book in the world that has a picture, a photo of a Bible and a beer on the cover. Nice. And, <laughs> and then the, the second one uh, also had a beer theme. So, uh, yeah, I love craft beer. I understand you're going in Elysian. Actually, I have a deconstructing evangelicalism support group in Seattle, and we meet at Elysian Fields. So nice. we, were just, we were just there a few days ago. I had a small group, but we have about 50 people in the group, but not as many pe- people show up for in person, but we have Zoom meetings too. So anyone is invited to come wherever you, you live. But anyways, that's kind of a, in a nutshell, where I've gone and where I'm at now. I, I guess I consider myself, I don't know what to call myself, except maybe a follower of the love ethic of Jesus. But I'm done with church. Uh, I don't like, although I'll call myself a progressive Christian at times. Um, I don't necessarily like the term Christian because Christian and Christianity as terms, uh, they're loaded and uh, there's just so much baggage that comes with those terms. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I dropped the label. Well, I dropped the label a long time ago, but even when I like came back to the faith for a little while, I had a really hard time you know, calling myself a Christian. So, and, I, and we've talked about this on the podcast. If someone asked me if I was a Christian, I would first ask them to define what Christian is. And if it was, you know, a follower of Jesus who believes that we should love the, love our neighbor, love our enemy, you know, and all that, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I, I could consider myself that. But for most of the time, if someone asked me, I'm like, well, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a follower of the way, which is actually more, more connected to Jesus than this idea of Christianity, I think. So yeah, I, I have jettisoned the word Christian. Uh, Nat, I don't know if has, if he has yet. I know he's, He's closer. <laughs> I, so you have to be careful because, you know, um, I, I still live in, in the Bible Belt. And so that explanation takes more time than most people are willing to give you. So I have, I have for all intents and purposes, dropped it. I think I wrote in my book, I don't, I don't know that it's redeemable. You know, there are certainly terms inside of Christianity that are, that are absolutely irredeemable. I have seen some people make a pretty good case for trying to rescue the word evangelical and they'll try to do that. So to me, that's sort of that, that whole no true Scotsman thing. Well, I'm a true evangelical, you know, and they'll define it the way they define it. And I go, yeah, I, and I agree. Okay, fine. But that term is... They're, load, they're loaded and if you keep using them, ninety more than 90% of people are going to misunderstand what you mean. So Right. So, you know, so I, I think we get to a point where, you know, for lack of, for whatever reason, um, we get so stuck defending words. You know, there are people who would be offended by what we have all just said. Like, I no longer consider myself a Christian. You're like, <gasps> I'm like, no, I just don't like the word. I, I, I let's call it something else. If, and, and because it's too married to, we, we've talked about this with historians who've come on and talked. We've talked to like Beth Allison Barr and others like Kristen DeMay, who like, you know, who've given us like, the, well, let, let's chart the history of this movement and see where it began and where it has ended up. And, 
through the moral majority of the 80s and all the Reagan years and all this stuff. Like this whole thing of evangelicalism left Jesus behind a long time ago and moved into a powerful voting block. And now you, now in order to embrace that label for real, you really have to also simultaneously embrace, you know, right wing conservative politics, nationalism, all kinds of other stuff that comes along with it. And I'm just not willing to engage with any of those. So I'm, yeah, that, make, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah, so I'm, I'm with you guys. One of the things I bring out in my, my book, Breaking Bad Faith, is that uh, Christianity, the way we think of it in our society, actually didn't exist for 200 years after Jesus. So, you know, we have all the, this way we think about what this religion is with the, with the institutional churches and the hierarchy and the creeds and the statement of faiths and people saying you have to believe, you know, this X, Y, and Z. and uh, uh, that's that's not the way the movement, the first century Jesus movement was at all. So, no, um, not at all. So that's the thing I'm trying to do is I love the study of history. So I always go back and go, okay, you know, we read this in the Bible, but what's going on behind the scenes? Because if you don't know the historical cultural context of the New Testament, for example, of the Jewish people in the first century and Second Temple Judaism and Roman imperialism, then you're going you're gonna to misunderstand a whole host of things just by reading the Bible. Not to mention the fact that there's mistranslations in the New Testament too. So. Right. <laughs> I mean, even you know, if it was translated perfectly, the the potential for anachronism is huge, right? I mean, right, the second right, we come right. to that text and we just start we just start projecting 21st century sensibilities onto it. I see this happen like most overtly when it comes to things that, like say sexual sexual identity, and we ascribe to Paul and to Jesus like a 21st century understanding of what we mean by these terms and don't even think about what they might have actually meant contextually within first and second century, you know, Palestine. It's borderline criminal how we've done that. Well, I mean, just the statement you just made would, would make 90% of Christians cringe because you, you said first century Palestine. Oh, sorry, my bad. Did I, did, I, did I mention a country that's not supposed to exist? Right. So, <laughs> I mean, that, that alone is just just shows the ignorance of a lot of the of the Christians because they're not willing to actually like learn history. And to Sorry, really, Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. You're going to have to get over right, that part, y'all. Right. All you sad evangelicals get over it. <laughs> but I think that, that goes into this whole idea of, of, of the title of your new book, Breaking Bad Faith, right? So we, we've, there's just been this notion of we have the right version of the Christianity and well, first of all, I have to ask: Breaking Bad Faith is is there a joke that in there with the with the show Breaking Bad, or is it just well, happen to be? It, 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 yeah, there is. There's a connotation <laughs> with that uh, for sure. Most people will recognize that that show Breaking Bad. So let's just say let's let's call it Breaking Bad Faith. And yeah, definitely there is a connotation with that. But I don't really go into that in the in the book. But right, but you get right. you get the picture. It's more like breaking habits. You know, we have a bad faith habit. And in order, to, the only way to get a good faith habit is to break the bad faith habits. And so I go into a whole host of things. I call them 12 myths. I start off the book by talking about 12 myths that most Christians believe that are not true. They're just, they're false. They're, they're not good, good uh, based on a good study of history. Uh, you know, they're from something that didn't go back to the original Jesus movement. And they're just, they're just faulty. And, and, and scams in some sense. So there's a lot of things. And you can't really understand what's going on as far as the Jesus movement in the first and second century until you kind of 
you start looking at it from the lens of that time period instead of looking at it from the lens of our present time period. So maybe uh, if you could give us an example, then um, you don't have to give us all 12 because, you know, buy the book, people. Um, <laughs> but maybe give us an example. What's, what's well, one of those? The biggest one would be the infallibility of, and, and inerrancy of the Bible. So, Whoa, whoa hold up. Are you suggesting <laughs> that it might not be infallible and inerrant? I'm not only suggesting it, I am <laughs> saying it doesn't make any sense that it does, that it is. And uh, the evidence points to it that it's not. And Please explain so, yourself, heretic. Yeah, right. I'll explain myself, heretic. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, well, here, here's the thing is, the first thing is that we're all taught in our society, even if you're not a Christian, usually, you're kind of taught to look at the Bible as all or nothing black and white. Yeah, exactly. Okay? Is this, you know, either it's the inerrant, infallible word of God throughout, oh. or, you know, it's not reliable. It's like, well, right. that, that's, you know, we just found three things in this, you know, Bible that, that are you know, un, unhistorical. Let's just throw the whole thing out. Right. I mean, and first of all, it's just, first of all, it's not fair because the Bible is not written by one author. It's written by whatever, 60, 70 authors over hundreds or a couple thousand years. Um, it's kind of like pointing at a bookshelf and say, hey, I found, I found half of uh, a lot of things wrong in, on that bookshelf. So the whole, every single book on that bookshelf is, is full of shit, right? Right. And <laughs> you can't look at it that way. You have to look at it like you would any histor- uh, historical document or, or narratives and look at it on a case-by-case basis. So that's the first thing. And then, and then the second thing is the Jewish people actually never looked uh, at the Bible as if it was infallible and errant and inerrant. And how do we know that? Well, if you open your eyes, you see the Bible actually critiques itself. <laughs> we have the prophets critiquing the sacrificial system. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Yep. Uh, what, I, what, what good are your sacrifices and burnt offerings to me? I just want a pure right. heart. Right. I, I hate all your festivals and your gatherings and right, all that stuff. Right. I hate all that stuff. And then even Jeremiah, this is really interesting. Jeremiah actually said, I never gave you those commands. Yeah. But but the NIV puts in, I didn't just give you those commands. They yeah. add a word that's not there. So That's not true. Yeah. Right. They didn't even come from God. Right. So you have that going on. And then you have the fact that if you look at the history of the different Jewish sects in the first century, you'd see, okay, the Sadducees only accepted the Torah. The... Um, Pharisees accepted the prophets and the writings as well, but they had their own traditions that they thought were on, on par with Scripture. The, the Greek Jews had the Septuagint, which had 14 books that never made it into our Protestant New Testament. They, they considered those Scriptures. The Essenes had their set of Scriptures that came out of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they thought those were divine Scripture. So the Jews were constantly debating what Scripture was. There wasn't a set definitive list of books of the Bible in Jesus's day. And they were always debating it. And when Jesus came on the scene, he started entered into that debate and started doing his own contradictions and so his own critique of the Torah. He, he, he would pick things from the prophets that talked about restorative justice and love a little bit from the Torah, but mostly from the prophets. And then he would critique the reciprocal violence, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, show no pity narratives of the Torah. So, that, I mean, when you look at it that way, you realize 
even Jesus and the earliest followers of Jesus didn't believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures. They were they were they were looking at they were looking for the love ethic that Jesus was teaching and go, okay, well we see that love ethic, then we can say that's probably from God. If we don't see that love ethic, if it contradicts what Jesus taught, then it can't be from God. That's what they were thinking. I mean, how many times does Jesus say, You have heard it said this, but I say this. Exactly. I mean right. And but yeah. we have conservative evangelical fundamentalists spouting you know, Levitical law. Right. They want to put the Ten Commandments up in the courthouse because that's that's a Christian ethic. What about when Jesus reads from the scroll in Isaiah and goes through the whole thing of, you know, I, that he's pronouncing, you know, liberty to the captives and restoring sight to the blind, and then he stops reading just before the part about, he just omits the part about the day of the vengeance of our Lord. Exactly. Um, I, I like, okay, and I'm done with this, and this has all been fulfilled in your hearing. So there's a grand tradition. Of, and it, this is what's exciting to me about what's happening, okay? And I, I just saw Mark Harris's Facebook post about a, a new book that's coming out that's going to be a bash on deconstruction um, from people who don't understand deconstruction. But the exciting thing to me is that we are engaging in the same kinds of traditions that Jesus did when we, 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 we allow ourselves freedom to critique the writing the way that, in an honest way, right? I was even thinking back to the prophets that, that even had the audacity to, cr- to critique God. I mean, Habakkuk in his, you know, the, the famous misquoted scripture that we, that we get from where we derive the whole thing about God can't look upon sin is really just, uh, he's just complaining. You know, he's just complaining that this God who he envisions to be this way, who he thinks is too holy to look upon sin, yet he still does it. How long will you do this? He's, I mean, the prophets had, had a long tradition of critiquing everything, not not even and not even not stopping when they began to even critique God and how he, they thought He was behaving or acting. Yeah, right. Most people don't understand that that, that there is that that spirit of debate. Uh, it's a Jewish tradition to question everything. I yeah. mean, even even in Genesis, I think it was Moses uh, was it Moses or someone who convinced God not to do certain things. You know, hey, if you I had can, ten righteous men, wait, right? right, right. I remember you said this before. You know, and it's like. What's going on there is it's more than just it, 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 it makes no sense that it's a one internally consistent, universally applicable voice of God throughout scripture. It just, and so when you allow yourself and give yourself permission to think that way, what happens is the, the restorative narratives actually start jumping out at you. And I go into that and how, you know, most of the, uh, we, you basically have a two-faced God when you, when you're forced to look at the Bible that, that way. You know, he's violent in one era or day and he's loving and kind. And then all of a sudden he sends people to hell. And, you know, so he, he's two-faced and he, he's a little schizophrenic and probably needs a therapist. But, yeah, exactly. um, and, but, you know, when you, when you realize that that's a, that's a product of, of someone trying to harmonize everything as if it's all true, then you realize, no, wait a minute, what's, what's the ugly parts and then, and then what good things rise to the top and what things sink to the bottom. And that's where get the restored narratives that I, the second half of my book, I basically make the case that this is worth looking at, folks. Yeah. Don't, don't throw out everything here. This is really worth, worth looking at. There's a very Western mindset where we have falsely equivocated facts with truth. And so if I find something in the Bible that's not factually true, and trust me, folks, there's a shit ton of stuff in the Old Testament 
and the New Testament, that is factually not true. There is no geologic evidence for worldwide flood. I'm so sorry. The Canaanite massacre probably didn't happen. There's growing evidence that the Jewish exodus did not occur, especially not in the way it's described. But if we, if we force ourselves into that false binary of it's either factually true or it's all crap, then we've painted ourselves into a corner of, of, of not being able to find any truth in it. And man, there's truth there that might have to be mined, might have to be worked for a bit, but it doesn't have to be factually true or, for, you know, factually accurate for, for it to have, for it to contain truth. And as a, as a Western mindset, I think we need to try and get ourselves out of it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's the one, that's, that's like one of the 12 is, that is yeah. constructing that. And then there's other ones that, that you may not have, you might not really think of. I mean, first of all, Jesus and Paul did not create a new religion called Christianity. They, they basically had a reformed version of Judaism, which was universalist in scope and wasn't really religious. The, the, um, Romans actually called the first followers atheists for a while because they didn't have a temple. They didn't have a synagogue system. They didn't have sacrifices. They hardly had any rituals. You know, they followed this human named Jesus. And, you know, so they, 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 was a, it was a way, more of a way of life than, uh, than a religion. And so that's, that's another one. I mean, to their sensibilities, they would have absolutely been atheists. They weren't subscribing to any of the things that they would have described as being religious. Right, right. Yep. So, and then church is another one. And, yeah. I, you know, the end times. And yes, I, I kind of I try to pick out things, not, not just like, for example, the two-faced God would be one of them too, but that kind of, that's related to the Bible, but also what I call a transactional God. And that's, that's this notion that God, uh, you have to appease him, pray to him or him. You have to, he's, he doesn't really do very much. Uh, unless you uh, jump through some religious hoops and pray, and sometimes you have to fast and all this stuff. And I was in the charismatic movement for years, and man, it just gets so crazy. You know, you can't, you feel like you got, you have to twist God's arm, you know? It's like, you're always praying, you're always doing this. After a while, you realize, no, wait a minute. People are just, they just have this belief that God is transactional, and this is being holy and spiritual if I pray all the time and ask God for stuff and ask God for revival or something. What does that mean? You know, I mean, think about that. It's God sitting around going, geez, I, I don't really care about what's going on. Oh, I got some Christians praying. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll answer their prayer. Is, is he, if he's a loving God, <laughs> isn't he already thinking about helping people? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So yeah, I go into that whole arena and that's huge because people are so attuned to that. It, it, but the, the, the main thing is that all of these things are tied back to what I call uh, religious, vi- actually violent, uh, religious, violent, sacrificial religion. It's just, it's sometimes, most of the time it's been violent, right? Because, because, you know, if you don't do the right thing, you go to hell. That's a violent, if you, you know, that's a violent experience. If you don't turn this nation back to God, there will be judgment. There will be, Jesus comes back, there will be a tribulation. There will be violence. There will be destruction. And then all the people who, you know, the hyper fundamentalists who say, oh, 9-11 was, God realized we're not Christian enough. So he allowed 9-11 to happen. 3,000 people to die, you know, stuff like that, you know. 
And so this is transact, you know, that's transactional. But but just even going going to prayer meetings can be transactional. Absolutely. Yeah. You just you just you 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 think that God will will start paying attention if you do this religious act, which is really crazy because Jesus actually said, "Ah, your Father knows what you need before you ask. Don't go long winded on prayers. Don't pray in public. Just go in your room. Don't let anyone see you." You know, just it's, it was almost like Jesus was actually saying just the opposite, but we don't pay attention to that. Yeah, it's actually, if it wasn't so harmful, it'd be funny. But look at the modern evangelical movement and the things that they insist upon, the things that they are pushing and fighting the hardest for. Let's get Jesus, let's get God back in the public square. When Jesus right, right, explicitly right. says, no, do that stuff in private. That's between you and God. You know, I remember having, there was a big, there was a big hullabaloo, 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 a big mess about, I think, a high school football coach here in Texas who who was not allowed well, to say a prayer. That same thing game. happened here in Washington State. It's like, have you all not read the Bible that you claim is an errand that actually explicitly prohibits you from doing those things? Jesus says, don't. And yet you're clamoring for your rights to stand in front of a stadium of people and pray to your God. Um, more as an act of, I don't, there's, I don't think there's anything pious about it. I think it's an act of drawing attention to yourself and declaring yourself to be holy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah that same, same thing happened in uh, Washington State with a, with a high school coach. It actually went up to the Supreme Court <laughs> and they ruled in favor of the coach because of the conservative judges now. So, um, but, but it's, it's just, it's crazy because people think your rights are being, well, first of all, you know, would they would they get get in the same hubbubble or whatever? You, <laughs> <laughs> you know, John, yes. help us out here. If What's somebody wanted to like <laughs> offer up a Muslim prayer, exactly right. Well, what about a, a Muslim prayer? A, uh, a sheikh? Uh, how about a uh, yeah. a Hindu prayer? If if you you know if your your uh, coach is from India, whatever you know, it's just like yeah. You know, would they be okay with that? I mean, no, of course not. You know, so they're they're thinking this is all Christian nation stuff, right? And then, like you said, it's 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 not it's, even it's it's nothing to do with religious liberty, right? It's nothing. And what I think is what I think is well, it's funny, John. Before I said that, I, was, I, I don't want to forget this. The Satanists are the ones who are killing it right now. You know, either the Satanists or the who's the uh, there's another version of the Bamofet that they, you know, but they're pressing this issue. To I think in large part to illustrate the absurdity of what's being what's being proclaimed or what's being claimed by these folks. Like, okay, if, if this is all about, you know, the freedom of religion in the public square, then we have a right to be here too. Let me throw this thing that you find grotesque in your face. Let me organize an after-school program for kids who are interested in Satanism. And I dare you to fight me on constitutional grounds when you allow Bible studies. You know, I don't know how much success they're having. I applaud their effort. And uh, I do find it weird. Maybe that's a symptom of my deconstruction. I find myself siding with the Satanists. But, uh... <laughs> You know? No, no. I mean, I mean, it's it's the principle. It's like, yeah, if you if you're gonna you're gonna fight for it for Christians, then you're gonna have to allow other religions to do the same thing. Yeah, hundred percent. Right? It's one thing. It's one thing to have a a Bible study or a Quran study or whatever off campus, you know, whatever, or off even after hours, and you're just using the school like a church uses the school, right? That's that's totally different. But this is a high school coach who's paid a salary from the school. And the kids signed up to play football. I'm sorry, they didn't sign up. To well, they're at an official school event, right? Sanctioned yeah. by the school. And here he is 
Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, it, but that's that's Texas, man, and it's probably Tennessee and probably Georgia and probably other southern states as well. I mean, apparently Washington too. But I had a friend of mine escorted from the rodeo here in Texas when it came through town this year because he didn't stand up for the pledge of allegiance. Oh my so god, that's crazy. He was he was not so gently asked to leave and then escorted from the building. Really? Um, See, well, this, this is this is the problem because. First of all, I was gonna, what I was gonna say earlier was, so we have Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that you cannot be considered, you've been sworn into Congress or whatever, unless you have put your hand on the Bible. To the point where she's like, she's got a YouTube or a TikTok or whatever, you know, marching to the, to the, to the office of somebody who didn't put their hand on the Bible to teach them the proper way to be the, the oh oath of gosh. office, which is a thousand percent untrue. We have presidents who have not put their hand on the Bible because they didn't believe they had to, because they don't. There's no law that says they have to. And, and you go so far as to, like you're saying, with these, with these schools and these, these, this idea that you have to be able to pray or, or pray or whatever. And, but again, provided it's Christian, it's uh, based within the Bible. As soon as you say, okay, well, let's, let's do a Muslim prayer too. Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're a Christian nation. No, we're not. We're not. And anyone who thinks we are, you need to go back and really do your, your history lessons because we're not a Christian nation. We've never been a Christian nation. The founding fathers did a very good job of separating church and state. And you're trying to pretend like none of that ever existed. And I, I just, this is like a soapbox moment for me because it, it gets me so like, Angry. Yeah, I know it is. It makes you angry, but you know, oh yeah, we got. If we stick with the history, like you said, the facts come out. You know, it's like there was a minority of people who you might consider evangelicals in the among the founding fathers. Jefferson was a deist. Most of the ideas that they were promoting were from the Enlightenment, rather than from. Well, there might have been some biblical ideas, but it was it was mostly the Enlightenment phenomenon that was going on in Europe at the time, which was actually kind of the stuff that we're doing, deconstructing. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was very yeah. humanist. I mean, is what it was. There was a lot of humanism there. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was basically saying, hey, we, we don't have to follow the dictates of the church. We can think for ourselves. We can look at science and nature and our experience. And, and, they, and they, you know, they still believed in God in some way, shape or form, but, you know, they were look, they're deconstructing the conservative Catholicism or Protestantism of the day. And they like to quote, right? Like Jefferson or Washington. Uh, first of all, I can, I can give you quotes from almost every founding father that opposes the ideas they say that these founding fathers, uh, stood for when it, when it comes to right. building a quote unquote Christian nation. But then we also need to realize that our founding fathers also sought a large majority of the people living in this country weren't even human. So you have to involve that discussion because you're, you're using people and saying these are godly, God-fearing people who had, you know, were using God as a principle how to build this nation while saying that a large majority of people in this country weren't even human beings, be it indigenous, the indigenous people of this, of this continent prior to us showing up or the, or the blacks that we brought into this country. Uh, both less than human. So it's just, it doesn't even make sense in, in a broader terms. I mean, it's, again, it's like looking yes, at... Yes, you're right, absolutely right. 
Yeah. It's just looking at history, right? And just saying, okay, let's be open and honest about our history mm-hmm. and, and move from there. And, mm-hmm. but within the Western evangelical, evangelical fundamentalists, they're not willing to do that, right? So you, yeah, you have to get these kinds of things out of the way. Um, like we're talking about these myths that I call, and then you can see the, um, the beauty in the restorative narratives much more clearly. And, and the problem is that the retributive narratives are so ingrained in our society that, you know, although we can sit here when we can critique mostly conservative Christians and that's warranted, we should. There's also people who might call themselves liberal or Democrats who also have the same kind of retributive uh, mindset. Uh, when they, you know, justify certain wars and they justify certain ways of handling criminals and, and so forth. So we have to kind of be careful. It's, it, it's so ingrained in our society. And I make that very clear in the book that you have to kind of step back and look at the big, look at the big picture and say, okay, if Jesus was really serious about nonviolence, love your enemies, you know, be restorative. In, in in your because God is merciful by nature, and you know you, you use the sword or weapons of warfare. You, if you live by that, you're going to die by that. Then then we have to rethink a whole host of other things, including the way we handle how how, how do we handle wrongdoers and criminals? How we how do we handle uh, problems in the world? How do we should we really be justifying war? And how what are some alternatives? that people have done throughout history that actually are more effective in the long run. In the short run, maybe no, not, but in the long run, they are. Well, that whole concept, I mean, for me, I started, you know, as I look into this stuff, especially when I got into stuff about nonviolence, you know, the second we started labeling things like just war, there was a problem, you know? And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a pine the sky idealist. I don't have a good answer for what, what do you do in these extreme situations when it does seem like war is not only justified, but required. But the second you start to do what I think Girard would call like sacralizing violence, that's different. You know, there's this kind of, there, there are these things that we, I think we, we do sometimes with our noses held and go, okay, I don't see another way around this. We kind of forced into this position. And then there's the kind of violence that like maybe Brian Zahn describes in his book, Farewell to Mars, where he says he, he remembers and recalls the days leading up to the Gulf War and watching this war unfold on TV. And not just going, oh, I guess we have to do this, but almost reveling in what was about to happen and in the, the beauty of our technology and look what we can do with these, you know, laser guided missiles going down chimneys from 300 miles away. But that kind of violence has been so wed to a certain brand of Christianity that it is, man, it, I'm finding it very difficult to unravel, if that makes sense. No, that's true. I, I cite Brian in my book on that very example, but the way our country rallied around after 9 11. I mean, frankly, uh, there wasn't that many people in the very beginning that was that were uh, resisting the war with Iraq. No, they were some, they kind of grew after a while when we realized, oh, there really aren't weapons of mass destruction. But if there were weapons of mass destruction, we're okay, you know. And uh, and 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 also going after uh, Osama bin Laden and everything. People were kind of more or less the overwhelming majority of our country was pro-war at that time until things started to shift. We got to know some of the facts behind the scenes. But yeah, there, there's kind of a history of the abolition of war movement. And uh, I kind of talk about that a lot in the book. 
people like Leo Tolstoy. There was a, a woman named uh, Von Bertner, I think, who led an abolition of war movement. And this was going on between World War, excuse me, the Civil War and World War One, And that, you know, that movement, of course, it, it didn't get any, get very far, but it's very interesting to look at the history of these things and, and kind of like after every war or there's, it goes through cycles and people revisit it after a while and go, wait a minute, maybe, you know, and then they realize World War I was absolutely crazy and the way we handled what's called the Versailles Treaty after the war with the Germans, that pretty much set up World War II. I mean, it was kind of like we, we just set them up for failure and didn't try to, we didn't love our enemies after World War I. No, we punished the hell out of them. Right, we punished the hell out of them. But in World War II, we, we did a better job and we did love our enemies and we and became allies with them. So there's there's things like that you gotta, you gotta look through and you go, hey, you know, why, let's learn from history and do it right Instead of keeping, you know, going through the same cycles over and over again. Well, you know, the the same, but it was, it's a little bit weird because you, I think of the words of Jesus when he says, you know, that no greater love has the man for than he would lay down his life for a friend. And so there is that sort of that sort of sentiment built into even something like warfare. But then we've but then we've begun to twist that a little bit. Like there's no greater love than one man would shed blood for another man. You know, like I, I won't just die for you; I would actually kill for you. Right, right, the right. military. I served in the military for 12 years. I can tell you, and I loved, I loved the people that I worked with, and it was, it was in a lot of ways a very positive experience, but it's ingrained in the culture. We are meant for warfare. Um, that's what we're bred for. I, even as an Air Force guy, we were, you know, it, we were the least militant of the bunch, but, you know, yeah. yes. but, you know, I had a, I had a, I tell the story sometimes I had this really good friend. I was, I was in the intelligence business. So my entire career in the Air Force, I worked with everybody. Wasn't I was always a multi um, um, multi multi service kind of deal, right? Um, joint service venture. So I, I had this really good friend who was a, a marine, the least marine you'd ever want to meet, because um, he was an intel marine. So he was like us. He's kind of nerdy, kind of you know. We did our intel, and so he got deployed in the early nineties someplace for six months. I, I ended up going to Guantanamo Bay, and then he came back from that experience, and that dude was different. Yeah, um, right. I used, to, I used to joke with him like, dude, you just got like remarine. Like, what the hell happened to you? He was like, you were so chill. And all of a sudden you're like, you know, what makes the grass grow? Blood makes the grass grow. You know, like, it, oh was, it was nuts. No. But that's, you know, that's, that's, that's so much a part of the culture. And I, I, I guess to a degree, it's, it's, you know, some of it's just a, just a, a way of dealing and rationalizing the violence that you know you're going to be called to do. And so you either wrestle with it or you embrace it. But how, in your opinion, is it, or is, is it even possible? to divorce ourselves from that that part of American culture and go a different way? Or is it so much in sort of around us that we can't get away from it? Well, I, I give some examples of how it can be done. Some of them are just on a, on a personal level, kind of like how do you handle wrongdoing in general? Some of them, some of them are like, for example, I give up the, the, the example of Norway. They have a whole new, a different way of looking at uh, criminal justice. I mean, we have a criminal justice reform movement in our country now, which is good, but it's nowhere near what Norway is doing. And their, their recidivism rate goes way down because of the way they treat and re-educate prisoners. 
And so that when they come out, they're not hardened, you know, they're not, you know, like, because they were treated terribly in prison, they're a lot, most people just come out worse, you know, or because of the conditions in the prison or whatever. So, so that's another, that's one example. And then there are some other examples of really cool stories about, uh, I'll give you one example. The one I like to, to, the one I like the most now is, and you mentioned a a war veteran came back and he was all gung ho. And, you know, well, there's this guy, a rock war veteran who came back and he came, he came back hating Muslims because that's what they were taught. And that was his experience fighting Muslims in Iraq. And so he comes back and he finds out there's a mosque in his community now when there wasn't one before and he's pissed off and he actually wants to go set a bomb in the mosque to kill people, Muslims. So have you, you haven't heard this story? It's actually no, a, a documentary no. called Stranger at the Gate. You should check it out. It's a really amazing story. So he goes to the, he goes to the mosque and he to scout it out. And the leaders in, of the mosque know, they say, man, something wrong with this guy, but you know, we'll extend him dignity and, and, and hospitality like we do everyone. And so they do, and they ended up biting out to dinner and, and over for the ho- into the house. And, and make a long story short, this guy ends up, because of the love and the way he was treated by these Muslims, he converts to Islam. Wow. <laughs> he becomes a leader <laughs> in the mosque. It blows your mind. It's wow. incredible. So just because that's it. It's the love ethic. These people were following a love ethic, and they they got it from their faith. And it's the same love ethic. Yeah, you know, as Jesus. And so I mean, that's a great example. Yeah. So how do you restore someone like that? I mean, you don't take a retributive approach and try to come against them or punish them. You try to win them, you know, show them love and respect and dignity and, and win them over with with your own, the way you, you love your neighbor. So um, that, and, and the other thing I wanted to bring up because you brought up, you know, this, this thing about soldiers, you know, learning, you know, to be, you know, gung-ho and violent and everything. That, you know, that wasn't always the case. I have got some, I got a chapter in the book that talks about the way that, uh, soldiers, they make a long story short, a general in World War II did some studies and noticed that most soldiers in a battle weren't shooting their guns. And then they did research back and they found records in the Civil War. They, they picked up all the guns after the Battle of Gettysburg. I don't know, only like 30% of the guns had been used, 40% max. And so what they discovered was that most soldiers will bend over backwards not to shoot, shoot people because we, we don't, we don't naturally want to shoot people. We don't naturally want to kill people. They, we have to be trained to do that. We have to be coerced to do that. And so, yeah, so that, and when they found that out, they changed the way they did boot camp and training starting in the Vietnam era. And then the rate of people using their weapons went way up. 
And I, I assume that they're still using those tactics today because what you described kind of sounds like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, my, my experience is, is limited. You know, I, I joined the Air Force primarily because they were the least military of all the four branches of service. And I wasn't really a military guy. Yeah, I wanted, right, right. You know, I was interested in going to college. Um, right. I had a friend who had joined and he had spoken pretty well of his experience. And so I'm like, okay, so I joined the Air Force really 99% because it wasn't the Marine Corps. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was, it seemed to me a little more cerebral. The people that attracted were a little more, just were different. You know what I'm saying? But the same culture still, still permeated that same, that same kind of deal. But my experience, so the guy that I talked about who went to Guantanamo Bay, this was before Guantanamo Bay had become Gitmo, you know, before it had become the black site where we took, this was pre 9-11. Uh, we just had had a military base at, Gu- at Guantanamo Bay for years and years. And I, I can't tell you why, because like, it's, it's, it's classified, but you can probably guess. My experience with my actual friends, and by, by which I mean people I know, and who have, no, not just people I know online, but people I know in person who have gone to combat, who have participated in those kinds of things, is way different than the bravado of people who have not been to war. These guys come back different. Um, and, and never, and never for, never for the better, always, in fact, I've got a good friend right now who struggles with PTSD, who struggles with suicidal ideation, um, all from his time in Iraq, where he was forced to do things that, that, that he never in his life considered he would. And it's, it's damaging as hell. So that belies the facade that is presented of these, you know, macho, you know, militant guys who just can't wait to go out there and just kill people. It, it's different when you actually have to participate and do it. No, no, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The, the um, I talk about that too, the PTSD and and the, the effects of war, and you know we hear about it, but it's really worse than you think. I mean, it's just people are broken, and it's it's just crazy. And and we're kind of scapegoating young people to you know make them to make them go to war, train them to think differently about killing. And it, uh, we're not really, we're not built for that. And, and I, you know, I've heard, I've heard, and I don't know for sure if this is true, but I, I, I assume it's true that the effects are more what you do end up doing to other people rather than what you've just observed. I mean, that could be, and I'm sure it's both, but. And, and I don't think you can know that outside of actually experiencing it. Yeah. You know what right. I mean? And we do, we have, we have been raised in a culture of, you know, and I, I, I'm not one of those guys that thinks like video game violence translates into desensitization. You know, yeah, maybe on one right. level, but it might contribute to the illusion that you can do these things. It, it and contributes not be to the illusion, altered, yeah, right? Like, yeah. but John and I have two uncles who went to Vietnam. It broke both of them. I mean, it was a hundred percent damaging and lifelong damaging. I, 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 I guarantee it contributed to my uncle's premature death not too many years ago, and to my other uncle just being living the rest of his life almost nomadic and disconnected, oh, really? no. you know, like, like, like fully functional in some ways, but fully broken in so many other ways. Right. Would you agree, John? I mean, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I and, mean and to the point where they never talked about it or rarely talked about it, but, yeah. it, but it broke all their relationships. You know what I mean? Like they right. were incapable of having normal human relationships and a lot of it just because of the violence that they were participants in and were, were subjected to. I feel that it goes farther than that. We have we have two uncles who were definitely involved in the warfare of Vietnam. Uh, we have a father who was Vietnam era but did not go to Vietnam. 
We have an uncle who was Navy, not during wartime. And I see issues with all of them, too, that did not... I mean, my father was during the Vietnam era, war era, but was stationed in Korea. I would say that the military structure does something to you. It breaks you down. It has to break you down. Because if it doesn't break you down, you can't, you, you cannot be relied upon to do what they need you to do at the moment they need you to do it. Exactly. Without question. Without question. The long term effects of being in a military, in the the military structure, I think, I'm not saying for everybody, because I have friends who've gone through the military and seem, for all intents and purposes, fine. But I think there's a level of tearing down of self to prop up this idea of a false idea of community where I will, I will protect you no matter what, but not for the, I, I, I honestly think it's not for the right reasons. Uh, it's, it's for this false idea that this nation that we live in is better than every other nation. And if we don't, if I don't protect you, we don't protect this. And I just, I, 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 I'm not a military guy. I never went. I was never in the armed forces. I'm speaking only from conversations I've had with friends. I could be completely blowing out my ass right now and it can be 100% wrong. I, I'm, I'm okay with admitting that. But from the outside looking in, that's what it looks like to me. And the connection now to the religious right and the Western evangelical fundamentalism is that this is all connected into the way of bringing forth the Jesus that we all need to the point that we have people in the military, in politics, and in religion who are forcibly forcing the hand of people to bring about Armageddon so we can see the second coming of Christ. And that scares, that more than anything scares the shit out of me. That's Mike Bickle's stated goal. Come on, man. (laughs) That's unfortunately true. They, you know, they kind of r- rally around, oh, yeah, uh, this is, <laughs> there's wars and rumors of wars. That's a good thing. That means Jesus yeah. is coming back. That means we're close, right? <laughs> Never mind that Jesus was talking about things that were going to happen in the first century. <laughs> I go into that. Well, and this, so let's talk about that for a second, because I know you, you addressed the end times a little bit. It's funny to me, and I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, the Bible clearly says kind of guy. Okay, but there are times in scripture when there are some fairly obvious things being said. When Jesus talks to his followers and he describes the events that will, that will come to pass, he says within a generation. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the mental gymnastics that I have endured over the years of listening to people talk about generations not being, well, that's not a literal generation. Jesus means that they walk back their whole timeline is crazy. What if Jesus just meant, Hey, this is all going to happen. There are people who are, you know, he's saying there are people who are standing here right now who will not taste death before these things come to pass. He's warning the generation that's there to be on the lookout for these signs because uh, we all know what's coming. Even the opening salvo of Revelation says that John, you know, John is about to describe things that must soon take place. Exactly. And then he goes off mm-hmm. on his rampage. Um, and then we have the audacity to think that 2,000 plus years later that those were all foretold. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's what they what they've done is they've said, you know, the obvious is that well, 
yeah, this is talking about the first century. And then they think, oh, well, Jesus didn't come back and the kingdom wasn't set up. So it can't be talking about the first century. Well, the other option is maybe you've just misinterpreted what he meant by coming back and what the kingdom is, (laughs) which is what, you know, we would probably say us who just deconstruct that whole thing is that um, you just misinterpreted the whole, the whole, the whole thing. He wasn't talking about the end of the world. He was talking about the end of an age, the temple, the second temple Judaism age. He was talking to Jewish people about their culture and their religion. Right. And you take that highly poetic language of him coming on the clouds. Right. And you literalize it like crazy. The Old Testament had had phrases like that all the time. Yeah, and it always meant judgment of some kind. It didn't mean literally someone was coming on the clouds. It was No, it's great. Now I I walked away from, you know, movements. I don't do movements anymore. So but you know, for a little while I was a fledgling preterist, you know what I mean? So like so there were those and and I, and, I, and I subscribe to. I, I think I can fall in line with a lot of that. You know what I mean? And, and essentially, what they're saying, what they would say. And I know you know this, but you know, essentially, the vast majority of what what we would call New Testament prophecy was fulfilled right around the time of seventy A.D. when when the Romans invaded and destroyed right. Jerusalem and put an end to the temple and mm-hmm. thus putting puts an end to the sacrificial system mm-hmm. finally and fully. But there's a lot of anti-Semitism wrapped up in all that stuff. So I kind of I stepped away from that because for too many of them that was the act of God against rebellious Jews. And then God was going to bring them all the task. I'm like, well, no, I don't think, I don't, I think you're missing that. I think it has a lot more to do with, you know, a warning of, hey, if you don't change, if you don't start looking for non-retributive ways to address, this is what, this is the end result. Um, yeah, you keep, exactly. You keep seeking warfare. You're going to, you know, you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. I think there's that kind of sense to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that 100%. I mean, especially when you read the, the historian um, Flavius Josephus, who wrote a book called The Jewish War in, in the late first century, basically he kind of spells it out what happened, whether, you know, there's a little controversy on how accurate he was, but he's pretty close to what Jesus said, you know. <laughs> so it's very interesting to compare those. Yeah, it's, that uh, for me though, and I don't know about this is, I know we're winding down to our time here, so I don't want to keep it too long, but there were certain there were certain phases of my deconstruction that were more liberating than others. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There were some of those yeah. some of the pieces that fell away that were hard and that, that that came with a sense of loss and that sometimes were a little frightening. And then there were some that when I finally like mentally went, No, I breathed physically easier. Yeah. And the day sure. I said, All that rapture stuff's bullshit. Yeah. I literally walked lighter. Yeah. I remember having a long conversation with my wife going, we don't have to believe this stuff. Like I've lived my entire life under this cloud of, of rapture and end times and all this stuff. And I'm like, I had that same sense when I started to reject, you know, a, you know, evangelical version of, of hell. And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. Wait. Okay. So I don't, so I, as you begin to sometimes shed some of these toxic beliefs, man, I think it's really healthy. Um, your view of the world can become expansive. I'm allowed now to embrace people I was told otherwise to shun or marginalize. Everything just kind of opens up. So um, if you're listening and these are the kinds of things that you are interested in, I think Michael's book is for you. I, I guarantee you, I, for every little bit of this that's frightening or scary, there's way more of it that is liberating and uplifting and giving you permission, I think, to live out 
uh, a life that's more expansive and more honest and more truthful versus laboring under all of these, all these other false notions that, that just really bring a lot of pressure and a lot of stress into your life. So anyway, that's, that's all I wanted to say about that. I appreciate that. I appreciate guys like you putting out there, um, writing books like this. And I don't want to forget to mention you have a podcast too, right? Yeah. I have a podcast called the spiritual group hub. That's, you can find that at spiritualgrouphub.com. And, uh, yeah, interview a lot of people like yourself and all people who have deconstructed. I try to find more, you know, unique guests, but, uh, also interview a lot of, a lot of people that people just want to listen to. But, um, yeah, I really appreciate your, your summary uh, there. That's exactly the audience I'm looking for for this book. Uh, And, um, the subtitle is, Exposing myth and violence in popular theology to recover the path of peace. And I think that's the, the good news is there is a different way, a, a restorative way <laughs> that's very exciting and a uh, lot of examples in the book of how it works. That's awesome. Man. I can't wait. Has, and so your book has released or will release? Oh, it, yeah, it releases on July 4th. So if this is, if so, if this is after July and you're listening to this, July 4th, it's on Amazon.com, so you yeah. can get it on Amazon. Yeah. And I, I have to say, uh, one of the coolest covers, right? Yeah. That cover <laughs> is remarkable. Don't you have the distinction of being the last cover that Ralph Baliendo is going to Yes, do? I'm going to have the... I think it's going to work out that I have the last cover. I think you Ralph do, because Ralph I just got told he's not designing that. mine, so I blame right. you. Well, <laughs> I was afraid. I was afraid I, was I wasn't going to get him, because that's what they told me at first. But no, then he just, ended up no. doing it. So I'm sorry. The cover, the cover, the cover is amazing. Uh, yeah, if, the cover. if you don't even know what the book is about, I think you'll pick it up because of that cover. Because that that is yeah, it's that yeah. is amazing. That is the yeah, genius I, yeah. of, of Raphael, man. He's a right. yeah. So I, you'll, have, was, you'll have the cover on the on on this podcast. Yeah, for sure. A thumbnail or something. Yeah, check it out, folks. It is pretty cool. But we'll for sure link to your stuff, your podcast, your book, everything that you're doing. Yep. We'll be pointing to Absolutely, the direction. Yeah. Um, again, it was a, it was a, it was a great pleasure to meet you in Nashville. Um, hope we, we get a chance to that again sometime. Um, and it was great to have you on the podcast, man. Thanks. Yeah. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk with you guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.